0: once said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest for unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In saying these words, Jesus called out to the laboring, to the weary, and the burdened, to come to him for rest for their souls. And in saying these things, he still today calls to the weary and to the burdened to come to him to find rest for their souls. What I'd like to speak to you about today is these words that Jesus spoke and look at a few things. First, what does it mean to labor and to be heavy laden in what Jesus says? Secondly, uh, what does it mean for Jesus to say that he would give you rest? And then third, a little bit of the implications for us today in our uh, calling as disciples of Jesus Christ, and the privilege and opportunity we have on His behalf to call out to the weary and to the burdened to come to Jesus for rest. So let's consider this for a moment. He he, he calls out. He says, "Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden." And he says these words right on the heels. Of making this declaration after he had been speaking to the people, teaching the people, receiving both those who came to him eagerly to hear the words that he was preaching and and were believing the words that he was speaking, and also speaking to those that uh, rejected his word, those that had hard hearts against his word. And it said that in verse 25... At that time Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and hast revealed them unto babes. This is a truth that we are reminded of again and again in God's word, that when the truth is spoken, there are those to whom that truth is hidden, those that do not have eyes to see it, those that do not have ears to hear it, And there are those that hear it and receive it with joy and with faith. And they do so because God has revealed it to them. I will tell you today, if you can hear God's word and you can understand it. And it is like food for your soul. It is like a cool drink of water to parch your weariness then that is by the grace and the mercy of God. That God has opened your eyes and opened your ears to be able to hear and receive and to understand that is a gift of God. That is the grace of God at work in your life. And Jesus, when His Word was preached and it was received, He lifted His eyes to heaven and He thanked His Father that He had revealed these precious truths to those that were babes, those that in the eyes of the world were the simple, were the children, were the, those that were not the great and mighty and wise and noble and wealthy and esteemed of this world, but the humble and the needy and the poor and the meek receive the word. That Jesus spoke, and this was because God had revealed it to them. Even so, Father, for it seemed good in thy sight. The will of God and the purpose of God is inscrutable to us. That is, that there are aspects of it that we cannot understand or explain, and sometimes, sometimes we just trust That God works things according to the purpose of His will because it pleases Him. And we might not be able to understand it. We might not be able to explain it, but that's okay. We trust that God has done it according to His good purpose. And that was the case here. It might have seemed like, uh, on the surface, it might have seemed at times that what Jesus in his mission here on earth was doing was not succeeding because uh, many of the people that you might have thought would have been the ones that would have embraced him and received him, the leaders, the chief priests of his people, his own people, rejected him and they, they despised him. And yet, God's purpose was never in danger of failing or falling short in any way, but was being brought to pass according to his will. He says, All things are delivered unto me of my Father, and no man knoweth the Son, but the Father, neither knoweth any man the Father, save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. So we get a little clue when Jesus calls out, and he says, Come unto me, you that labor and are heavy laden. That he knows, he is expecting and knows that this call, this invitation, will fall fruitfully on the ears of those whose hearts have been prepared to receive it. So what what does it mean when he says, ye that labor and are heavy laden? Well, there's a great illustration of this in Luke uh, chapter 5. I think many of you know uh, what it means to labor you know what it means to be burdened. Perhaps you've had an experience where you've worked hard out in the heat of the sun using your body all day and you were tired. You were weary. And maybe it wasn't just one day. Maybe it was six days. And maybe it wasn't just one week, but week after week after week after week. And you know what it's like when you toil and you labor. And, and when you come to the end of that work, you are Weary. And that's what this word labor means. It means to to toil to the point of becoming weary. And that's why sometimes this is translated or paraphrased paraphrased as, Come unto me, all ye that are weary. Because the laboring implies weariness. It's sometimes also translated toil, as it is here, same word in Luke chapter 5. We'll get a good illustration of. What, it, what it's like to toil and be heavy laden. It came to pass that as the people, this is Luke chapter 5, pressed upon him to hear the word of God, he stood by the lake of Gennesaret and saw two ships standing by the lake, but the fishermen were gone out of them and were washing their nets. And he entered into one of the ships, which was Simon's, and prayed him that he would thrust out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people out of the ship Now when he had left speaking, he said unto Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a draft. Okay, here's here's the situation. Jesus is preaching to a great crowd, and they're gathered by the side of the sea. And in order to get a more convenient uh, place to be able to teach the people from, he goes out into the boat, and perhaps in the boat there's a place he can be elevated up, A little bit kind of like a pulpit and he could speak to the people so that the people are able to hear him and he's teaching them he's teaching them now this teaching is taking place after the fishermen had experienced a long day of work out fishing and this was not uh, this was not the kind of fishing that I have done I've been fishing I like fishing but when I fish you know, I'm either at the, at the dock, just casting my pole in, kind of reeling in the fish, or I'm out on a kayak on the lake, just enjoying the peace. Now, this was hard work all day. Big nets, big equipment that they're moving around their ship, dealing with the sea. These, these, these worked hard. And this is at the end of their day. And Jesus now says, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a draft. Keep in mind, this was no small task. Notice Peter's, Simon Simon Peter, uh, before his calling to Jesus to be a disciple. It says, Simon answering said unto him, Master, we have toiled all the night and have taken nothing. Nevertheless, at thy word, I will let down the net. Put yourself in Simon's shoes here for a moment. Imagine what it must have been like at this point. He had toiled all night long and caught nothing. So not only was he tired from a long day's work, but it had not been a fruitful day. So there wasn't even that uh, pleasure of a great uh, harvest of fish to be able to ease the pain of having worked all night long. And then think about how you would feel. Even, even a bad day of work, at least now he'd come to his, the end of his work, in this case, work night. They were working all night long. Come to the end. They'd hauled in their nets. They were, what does it say? They were um, washing their nets. They're getting cleaned up for the day. They're done. They're looking forward to going home, laying down, and getting some rest. And then Jesus says, let's go back out and cast down your nets. And Peter says, Simon says, we have toiled all the night. Same word as Jesus uses when he says, come unto me all that labor. This, they are weary, But something amazing happens, as you see here. Uh, Nevertheless, at thy word. So Simon, even though... He's reluctant to do this. He puts up maybe a little resistance, but he obeys. And it says, And when they had done uh, this, they enclosed a great multitude of fishes and their net break, and they beckoned unto their partners, which were in the other ship, that they should come and help them. And they came and filled both the ships, so that they began to sink. What becomes of this is actually one of Jesus' Miracles. Demonstrating his power over nature and his ability to provide an abundance for those that are in need. And there's a there's many lessons in this as well, a lesson of how uh, Simon and the other fishermen, James and John and the others, they labored, they, they put in their own labor all night long and it received nothing. That wasn't necessarily the normal way of their work. That's not how God has designed nature for our labor to be fruitful. But Jesus was teaching them something in this. Teaching them a spiritual lesson that we can learn from that example. Because then with with very little effort at all, following the instruction of Jesus, they bring in a great fruitful harvest of fish so that they can't even barely hold in both their ships all the fish that they catch with hardly any effort at all. So Simon understood this was a miracle. I mean, they they, they worked all night and caught nothing and now this happens. Simon Peter, when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. He understood something incredible had happened. And he is confronted with his own sinfulness and unworthiness. You know, Depart from me. It's not because he doesn't want to be around Jesus. It's not because he uh, doesn't want anything to do with Jesus. It's because he realizes how utterly unworthy he is of this great man that he has come into contact with. "...for he was astonished and all they that were with him at the draft of fishes which they had taken." But Jesus doesn't depart from him. He doesn't depart from the unworthy. He calls the unworthy to himself. And in this case, this unworthy sinner, this sinful man, Simon, along with the others, Jesus calls them and commissions them to be his disciples. And so also was James the son of uh, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, which were partners with Simon, and Jesus said unto Simon, "Fear not, from henceforth thou shalt catch men." And when they had brought their ships to land, they forsook all and followed him. An amazing description of the calling of some of Jesus's closest disciples, how that began. And he says, "You're going to have a new kind of job." You're going to catch men. And that's ultimately what what they would do. They They would draw, as they used to draw fishes into the boat, they would draw people into the kingdom of God in the service of their Lord Jesus Christ. And they would do so not by the strength of their own effort or their own power or their own abilities, but by the power of God. That's what they would be called to do. So we have a visual picture of what it means to labor. Now, it's important we take away the right lesson from this. Because, I said, this is this was demonstrating a spiritual lesson to them. I don't want you to think, necessarily, not that Jesus couldn't and doesn't sometimes do this, but this doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to go into work tomorrow, and you're just going to go in... And you'll put in five minutes of, of effort. And God is just going to cause that five minutes of effort to bear so much fruit that it'll be like all the work you would have done for the next two weeks is just accomplished in those five minutes. God does that kind of thing sometimes. I'm not saying he doesn't. But I don't think that's the main lesson that he's calling us to take away from, from this. What I think the lesson you can take away from this is that what Jesus did for the disciples, for the fishermen on that day in terms of natural, physical things, Jesus will do for your soul. Provide an overabundance, not in proportion to your effort, but in proportion to his goodness and his ability to provide for the needs of your soul an overflowing abundance so he calls the laboring and the burdened to come to him for rest so how do we how do we labor what does it mean to labor then then if this is this is spiritual i mean i don't think it's not necessarily speaking of a natural weariness that we experience in this life but i think the real profound meaning of this is spiritual. What does it mean to labor? Well, I think this has several facets to it. First of all, we can labor and be heavy laden because of our sin. Jesus once said to those that heard him and believe what he was saying, he said, if you you hear my word and you follow my word, Then you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. And those that heard him say that, they didn't understand. They said, we're not not slaves to anyone. We're not servants to anyone. We've never been in bondage. Jesus says, he that commits sin is a servant of sin. But it isn't just the laboring of sin. Now, Now, sin itself enslaves those that are given to it. It has an enslaving power. Because when you go down the road of sin, when you sin, sin is never satisfied with just going a little way into sin. It has an enslaving kind of power to it. Those that sin will then be inclined, tempted. We will be inclined to sin in order to cover up the sin. And then we'll be inclined to sin more because... Uh, we sin believing that it will bring us a kind of pleasure and satisfaction that it never truly lives up to that which satisfies the soul. Therefore, it causes us to, when we partake in sin, to continue to strive down the path of sin, seeking to satisfy something that will never be satisfied. It's kind of like, in, a, I think, Ecclesiastes, when it says, the eye is never full of seeing. Like if, if you're given, for example, to, to lust, you think that by, by lusting after something that that will, that will satisfy the sinful desire that's in the heart, but it, it, doesn't, it doesn't satisfy it. It feeds it and causes it to grow in its power to enslave you and take over your life. So sin itself is, is enslaving. And that is a burden. That is a heavy weight, but I don't think it's just talking about being enslaved to sin is the burden, but for those whose consciences, consciences have been made aware of the offense that sin is against God and the guilt of sin and the judgment that is due because of sin, the weight of that guilt is a burden that we are unable to bear. It is a burden that will weigh down the soul. ...of those that are burdened by it. And so sin uh, makes us guilty before God. When we're conscious of that guilt, if our consciences aren't seared with a hot iron... ...when we're conscious of that guilt, that, that is a burden upon us... ...which often leads us to seek out sin even more... ...in order to appease, the, in order to distract ourselves from those unpleasant feelings of guilt. And so it's a vicious cycle. It's a spiral from which you cannot escape. And of course, we will try to escape from it. We'll try. We'll we'll recognize sometimes that our sin is destroying us or causing harm to people around us. And so we try to... What do we try to do? We try to be better. We try to change. We try to reform ourselves. And if if you do that by your own strength then it only leads to even more despair because we will recognize our own inability to fix the problem of sin in our life. So this is an unbearable burden that will weigh us down and make us weary. But there's there's something else here, I think, as well. And that is uh, that it isn't just about sin and the guilt of sin. It's that many uh, times... Our inclination is to labor in order to establish our own righteousness before God. That is, it isn't our bad works, our sin alone, that are, the, uh, are, are what's wrong with us at times. Often it is our good works that we seek to do in order to establish our own righteousness. That is that if, if you seek to uh, make yourself righteous and right with God by your own works, this is also a vicious cycle and a, and a burden that you cannot bear. It is a labor that leads to great weariness. Because you'd never be able to do it. Because seeking righteousness uh, that is of the law, which is defined by... They that do those things shall live in them is something that we all have fallen short of and will fallen short of. Therefore, if you seek to establish a right relationship with God by your own works and your own righteousness, then that will lead to utter weariness and despair as well. And so we're called to a different righteousness. Romans chapter 10 uh, speaks about this contrast between the righteousness which is by works and the righteousness which is by faith. Romans chapter 10, uh, verse 1, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that that they might be saved for I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. Paul was desirous that the people of his nation, his own people, his own nation, uh, that they would be saved. And he, could, and he bore record, he said they have a zeal of God, but it's not according to knowledge. He, I think, could speak this from personal experience, because that was the state that he was in, before God confronted him on the road to Damascus. He had a zeal. He believed, as he was persecuting the followers of Jesus and trying to stamp out the name of Jesus from the world, he believed he was doing that in service to God. And he believed that by his works, his scrupulous attention to the duties of the law and the traditions of their people that he was establishing his righteousness before God. And so he could look out at his brethren and say that he he had a desire for their salvation, their deliverance. He says, For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. That... Was the essence of their spiritual condition. They did not, they were ignorant of the righteousness of God, of God's righteousness, so they went about to establish their own righteousness. That, we could say, is another kind of labor that leads to weariness and a burden to be borne. But there's yet another facet to this laboring. And in the context, this may in fact have been most uh, what was in mind when Jesus speaks these words. Now, it helps us to understand a little bit the metaphors that Jesus is employing here in what he says. And if you haven't noticed it, if you stop and you think about Jesus' words, they're somewhat paradoxical. Because... Uh, notice the language he uses here. First, he says, Come that are labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Well, that, that itself doesn't sound paradoxical. That's a very um, warm and loving and beautiful kind of invitation that Jesus is giving. Uh, it's kind of like if... Uh, he, he uses this metaphor sometimes... God is holding a great feast. And he he is inviting the hungry to his dinner feast to come and to be fed. It's beautiful. It's, it's, uh, it's, It's showing the generosity and the kindness and the goodness of God. And then he says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. And for I am meek and lowly in heart. Now, what is a yoke? Well, there is the physical meaning of this, which is that a yoke was, and, and still is today for those that use it, a yoke was something that you put on oxen so that they could uh, plow in the field, that they could carry, uh, the, that they could tow the plow, or whatever else needed to be done with them. It was an instrument of their service. And their labor. So a yoke, when you, if you were to put on a yoke, you would put on a yoke in order that you might work. That's the reason that you would put a yoke upon you. And so that's why I say it's a little paradoxical. Because Jesus is essentially saying, come and labor for me and you will have rest why would why would he say this well so that's that's we have you can have this physical picture whether you've seen this or not, you can imagine some oxen plowing in a field and they've got a yoke uh, on their shoulders so that they could be attached to the plow or sometimes attached to another oxen because they would plow in pairs and labor together and that's an instrument of work, and that is in essence a kind of burden a uh, a, a laden, they're laden on their shoulders and they're laboring in the field. But the people at the time, it was a common way of speaking about a certain uh, lifestyle of discipleship, a, life, a way of life of discipleship. It's kind of like, like if you talk about the idea of religion, Um, They would sometimes use the idea of a yoke as a metaphor for someone's religion. But I use that word with care because I think our idea of religion today doesn't quite fit what I'm talking about. But, for example, they would talk about, the Jews at the time, they would talk about taking on the yoke of the kingdom of God. They would also talk about taking on the yoke of the law of Moses. In other words, if you were, uh, say you were uh, converting to be among the people of Israel to become a Jew and you became circumcised and you came under the law of Moses and dedicated your life to living according to that set of rules and laws, they would sometimes speak about that as taking on the yoke of the law of Moses. They also sometimes used it to speak about particular rabbis, teachers at the time. Some of the most prominent were a rabbi named Hillel and another one named Shammai. And in the writings of the time, it speaks about the yoke of Hillel or the yoke of Shammai. So Jesus was not the first one to use this concept in a metaphorical sense. And so here what he's saying is he's saying take upon you my yoke. He's claiming a kind of authority over their lives. He's saying, take on you this way of life. Now, the reason I say this is like religion, but it doesn't quite fit our modern use of it, because many times people today, when they speak about religion, they think about it as just kind of this compartmental, compartmentalized part of your life. It's like if you were, someone asks you who you are, and they might say, well, like, what do you, you do this for work, and you, um, you, know, you, you have this many kids, and your religion is this, and your favorite color is this, and your sports team is this. That's not what I mean when I'm talking about religion. I'm talking about an entire way of life, something that people dedicated themselves to. To take upon you the law of Moses, to be circumcised and become a Jew, this was not just uh, an accessory to your identity. This was a complete transformation of your entire way of life. And I think Jesus is talking about something no, something no less significant, but different in, in a very important way. Now, Jesus spoke about the burden that had been laid upon the people in this time. In Luke chapter 11, he speaks about the burden. He, he pronounces woes upon the Pharisees, upon the, the teachers of the law, what he calls lawyers, which, which then was, is, is different from what we think of as a lawyer today. The lawyer was someone who is an expert in the law of Moses and responsible for teaching and instructing the people how to live their lives in obedience to it. And that would have been a very noble an honorable position to be in, had they been doing that faithfully in accordance with the word of God and the righteousness of God rather than the traditions of men. And Jesus, that's what Jesus confronts them about. In Luke chapter 11, verse 45, "...then answered one of the lawyers and said unto him, Master, thus saying, Thou reproachest us also." Well, they recognized that Jesus was reproaching them by his words. And he said, Woe unto you also, ye lawyers! For ye laid men with burdens grievous to be borne, and ye yourselves touch not the burdens with one of your fingers. Now we notice about Jesus, Jesus wasn't concerned about winning the praise of men. Jesus wasn't concerned about being popular with with everyone, especially the most powerful, influential people in, in his society. He's not afraid to call them out. When they were guilty of great injustice and oppression. And in this case, it is because of what he describes here. He says, Ye laid men with burdens grievous to be borne, and ye yourselves touched not the burdens with one of your fingers. Now you have to get into the New Testament and, and get a sense of what was going on at the time to really see what Jesus is talking about here. But he's talking about all the interpretations. And applications of the law and the traditions, which put a great weight and a great burden on the people, and yet there was no help and no guidance for them. There was—it uh, was all uh, works of right of man's righteousness and not grace at the at the and the righteousness of God. Uh, in verse fifty-two, he says, "Woe unto you, lawyers!" For ye have taken away the key of knowledge, ye entered not in yourselves, and then that were entering in, ye hindered. So not only they did not you know, receive the truth and the words of Jesus, but then they, that was not sufficient. They also hindered, they prevented those that would have entered in, or they, they, they tried to do so. Uh, I'll just use one example. The, you see this come up several times. The Sabbath law. God created one of the most incredible kindnesses and blessings when he gave the law to the people. And that was a day of rest. One day out of seven, they would be, able, they would be allowed to rest from all their work. Uh, if you were a servant, your master could not make you work. They had to let you rest from your work. Even the animals were given rest. The people were given rest. Uh, it, was, it was a forced rest upon the people. And what, what a greater gift can you imagine God giving in his law, especially to the lowest people of society, because they were the ones that would have been most burdened by the labor that would go on. And they were required to be given rest one day out of seven. Sounds wonderful. Wonderful. And yet something that ought to have been a blessing, the the elders of the people, the chief priests, the leaders of the people, they had interpreted this in such a way as to put a burden upon the shoulders of the people that made it more difficult for them rather than being a blessing. And Jesus came in conflict with this. He healed somebody who had been lame their whole life, And because he did it on the Sabbath day, people were angry at him for healing. It made no sense. This was how twisted they had become because they were so concerned with uh, appearing righteous that they neglected the true righteousness and spirit of the law that God had given them. And so you can begin to get a picture of when Jesus is speaking these words to the people at the time, what it must have been like for them. Just to be a common person, a sinner, someone who could look at the Pharisees and the most righteous and the most esteemed in society and recognize that your, you know, your righteousness, just you're never going to attain it. You're going to spend your whole life laboring and you'll never live up To the burdens that have been placed upon you. Or to feel the weight in your conscience of your sin. And to realize that that you have no hope of making things right. You can't make up for what you've done in in offending God. You need something else. You need mercy. And this is what Jesus spoke of. He spoke of great mercy and kindness that he gives. He, he he calls, he says, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. Now, how does get, how does Jesus give rest? Well, it speaks in Hebrews about new covenant rest. It says that when we enter into his rest, we cease. From our own labors. We cease from our own labors. What does it mean to cease from your own labors? You submit yourself unto the righteousness of God. You despair. You give up any hope. Of establishing your own righteousness. By your works. And you never again in your life. Labor for yourself. You never are doing your own works. What does it mean to be in the yoke of Jesus? It doesn't mean we stop laboring. It doesn't mean we stop doing anything. But our whole purpose for our works is completely transformed because we are no longer laboring for ourselves. We're not laboring in order to try to establish a certain level of righteousness. We're not laboring to try to make up for our, our sins, to, to set our accounts right with God. We're not laboring to attain a certain uh, level or status. We're not doing anything for ourselves anymore. We're laboring for Jesus. And he is a wonderful master to labor for. Masters of this world might be cruel, they might be harsh, they might be capricious. They might expect from us more than we're able to give. They might drain us of every ounce of our strength and energy. That's not how Jesus works. His burden is light. His yoke is easy. His commandments are not grievous. He doesn't ask us to do anything that isn't good for us. You know, I've... I've had several bosses over the course of my years of working and, and they've been really good. I, I've been very thankful, grateful that I haven't had to work for too many people that were difficult to work for. Um, but even the greatest bosses on earth that I've had, I can't say necessarily that everything they ever asked me to do was for my own good, was with my benefit in mind. But that's how Jesus is. Every command that He gives is to bring about harmony, blessing, peace, joy, fruitfulness, and righteousness, and holiness in your life. And for the good of those around you. And for the good of His kingdom. And and so that you would uh, participate in the glory of God. That you would perceive it for yourself. And be a living sacrifice unto Him. How does he he give rest? Well, think about those three burdens. First of all, he gives rest by forgiving our sins. We don't have to carry around the burden of guilt. Because Jesus gives the forgiveness of sins. He doesn't count them against us. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute iniquity. God doesn't count our sin against us. He forgives His people from their sins. And so, He gives us rest. But uh, secondly, secondly, He gives us rest because He provides for us a righteousness which comes from outside of ourselves. A righteousness which is not our own, but He gives His righteousness to us. He counts us as righteous, even as He at the very same time takes our sins upon Himself, bears them for us upon His cross, pays the penalty for them, so that we might not have our sin counted against us, but instead might have the righteousness of God. And... And then he calls us into his service. And rather than weighing upon us like the the teachers of the law did in, in that time, weighing upon us burdens that are too heavy for us to bear and not lifting one finger to help us, Jesus does the very opposite. He gives us a burden which is not grievous, which is easy, easy to bear. And then he supplies Everything that we need to carry that burden. Everything that you stand in need of to serve Him, Jesus supplies. As it says in in Romans chapter 8, I believe, it says, Shall not He that uh, spare not His Son, but freely delivered Him up for us all, also with Him, also freely give us all things? If God didn't hold back His only begotten Son but gave Him for your salvation, if you need anything else, don't you know that He will supply that as well? So Jesus never gives us anything too hard to bear that He will not help us to bear. And so, in this, He gives rest unto our souls. What does it mean to come unto Him? How do we come unto Him? I mean, at that time... People could literally run up to Jesus and say, Jesus, I'll follow you. But even then, that wasn't really fully everything that it meant to come unto Jesus. To come unto him is to come unto him by faith. And that is the only way. He that cometh to God says must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Jesus said uh, in John 6, He says, He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. So to, to come to Him and to believe in Him go together like food and drink. It's the only way to come. We can't, at this time, now we can't come physically, geographically to where Jesus is, but we can come to Him in spirit. We can come to Him by faith as He draws us to Him by the power of the truth and by His Spirit. And so when we do come, notice this also, that we can contrast Jesus' call for those to come at Him with with all the ways that the people of this world use to try to influence and manipulate and cause others to do what they want. People, kings, leaders, people use force, Deception, manipulation, fear, guilt. All these different methods that are used in this world to get other people to do what you want them to do. That's not how Jesus works. He says, I'm meek and lowly of heart. Again, something that's almost paradoxical when it's said by the King of kings and Lord of lords. But he is. Because you see that everyone that truly comes Jesus, that truly follows Him, they they do so because they want to, because they desire to from their heart. And that means, therefore, that in doing so, they demonstrate the power of a heart changed by the power of God. Because we know that's not natural. We know that's not our natural state to desire to come to Jesus. And yet, look at your own experience. If you have, Come to trust in Jesus if you despair of your own righteousness and you have trusted in him for the forgiveness of your sins you, you came with joy and you were overflowing with joy at the realization of those things and you wanted to with, with, with the inner being of your heart and that is because God by his power touched your heart to draw you to himself. And that's also the encouragement. I said at the beginning that we have the privilege of calling others to Jesus on his behalf. That's like what the disciples did. Uh, From henceforth, you shall catch men. I'll make you fishers of men. They were going to go out and they were going to draw people to Jesus on his behalf. He's the one doing the, the drawing, but he uses his disciples as a means by which the truth would go out in the world and draw people to him. And we have the privilege to participate in that. And we can do so with confidence, knowing, uh, you know, because it could get discouraging. You know why it could get discouraging? We could think it's pointless. It's hopeless to invite people to come to Jesus because man's heart by nature is hardened against the things of God. They are foolishness to him. But don't stop there. Don't stop at that thought and think that it's hopeless. Because if you do, you're ignoring that God can and does touch somebody's heart, change their heart before, during, or after you speak to them and proclaim to them the good news of Jesus Christ. It may be before. God may have already made that field ready to receive the seed of His Word so that it could be received with fruit. Or it may be in the very moment that you're speaking that God enlightens the mind of the one hearing. Kind of like it seemed like He did with Lydia when it said, God opened her heart that she attended unto the things that were spoken by the Apostle Paul. Or maybe it would be later. Maybe at the time you, you proclaim the Gospel of Jesus Christ, you talk to a Wearied, laden sinner, overwhelmed with guilt, and you proclaim the forgiveness that Jesus provides to all those that come to Him. And maybe they, their eyes are glazed over and they don't understand it, or maybe they even get angry at you. Don't despair. Because it's not going to be by the uh, power of your words or the greatness of your persuasion, but by the power of God. To touch a heart of stone and to open the eyes of the blind and to unstop the ears to be able to receive the truth of his word. And so we have the great encouragement of the rest that our Lord gives us. May we be grateful for it. And may we labor in his service knowing that it is a joyful labor, it's not a heavy burden. It doesn't mean it's not hard. It doesn't mean that it's not attended with sufferings. But all of those things can be born with joy and with peace. Because it's not by your strength. It's not even your work. It's His work that He has called us to as His disciples. And He gives us rest for our souls. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that you preserve this incredible call, this bidding of Jesus to the weary and the heavy laden, that we have these words preserved down to us to this day. Lord, maybe there's some here today that are feeling weary and heavy laden, that have sought to try to go by their own strength or their own righteousness or their own wisdom. Lord, remind us again. Remind us again to despair of our self, our own righteousness, and submit, as it says, ourselves to the righteousness of God. To cease from our own labors and find rest in Jesus Christ and His precious work of salvation for all His people